0: We're so pleased to have Martin Peltier on the Globe Screen podcast. Welcome, Martin. Thank you,
1: Zef. It's a pleasure to be, uh, to be speaking with you today.
0: Likewise. And I guess tell us a little bit about yourself and your background.
1: Yes. So I started out not knowing much about the visual effects industry, to be fair. I was ending a graphic design degree. Uh, in the Quebec, Laval University in 19, no, in 20, hold on. When was it again? It's been a while, 1990. Nine and, and is then, that where you're from, is Quebec? Yeah, I'm from Quebec and I live in Quebec at the moment. I've been back in Quebec since eight or nine years now.
0: I've never been there, but I've only heard wonderful things about it. So I definitely intend to visit
1: that city. You a should, visit. it's a beautiful place. yeah. yeah. So I went through the graphic design program back in the days, not being so sure about, about it, <laughs> to be honest. And then at some point I remember coming back home, seeing a documentary on a local network, talking about a, a little shop that is known these days uh, called Hybrid, they're up north in in Montréal and at the time. They were basically just a bunch of cool guys, not wearing any shoes, walking around in a house, in, the, in, in bare, barefoot in a house, doing special effects and visual effects on big blockbuster movies at the time. And I was astonished by the fact that it was actually a way of life and a job. I didn't know anything about it back then and i got super intrigued I started reaching out to the guys in the hybrid and asked them asking them what exactly what exactly are they doing on a daily basis and then how can you end up doing such a cool job and then they just gave me a couple of tips i ended up moving from quebec to montreal right after wrapping my degree in graphic design and I entered an intensive 12-month program in a school specialized for visual effects and 3D animation at the time.
0: Was that part of some of the advice that they had given you?
1: Oh, absolutely. Because at the time, the only option to get in that field was to basically attend like a, 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 such an intensive course in, in a 12-month private school. There was no bachelor's degree or giving such programs or training. So it was the only way in. So I went through it, and then I started knocking at some doors. But in my mind, there was only one place I wanted to start working at, and it was hybrid. And so I became that little annoying guy that kept on sending stills that I cooked up overnight uh, on my own computers, and then uh, some renders and some uh, basic animation clips that I uh, worked on until they gave me the, the call that I was waiting for just to get me an entry-level job. And I started working with them just before 2000, something, around 2020, yeah, just before 2000. And then I got myself into the industry as a render wrangler, layout and tracking, camera tracking artist, and I was doing double shifts, one being my regular shift. And then the second one, I was deciding on my own to stay with the guys on the third level because I thought that doing what they were doing was so cool. They were they were the 3D guys that were doing texturing, shading, and lighting, matte painting, and basically the back end of the 3D pipeline. And I was completely soaked in and amazed by what we could achieve with the soft image 3d application at the time that they were using. So I went ahead and got like full speed into intense training. And then I spent like a couple of years there. And then I transferred over to another company that was called Buzz Image at the time and Buzz Image was, was that super nice different VFX that was relying mainly on, on generalists, like full CG generalist that could do pretty much everything from the ground up. And uh, I learned a lot over there, just like working either on my own or with some very good, knowledgeable 3D artists. And then I got myself into a place where I could like very learn on a fast track how to do everything and know exactly where would my skill sets be the most valuable to build my own name and career. And I ended up emphasizing a lot on the back end. Like I said, I was still struck by like lightning, lighting and texturing and shading and a little bit of compositing and all that stuff.
0: And that first company that you were with, do you recall which films? You said they were working on some pretty big films at the time. Do you recall? Oh yeah, one?
1: I remember. So the one let me remember the name again they were working on a movie with john travolta at the time in a some kind of a sci-fi movie a oh. very cheesy movie back in the days but I, th- that 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 was the main uh, was
0: it after face off or
1: no that was before face off oh, it was
0: before face off okay face off was incredible by the way <laughs> i'm going to be having yeah. the producer of the movie face off i'm friendly with him it's a guy named david Permit. He's going to be on the podcast soon.
1: Battlefield Earth.
0: Oh, Battlefield Earth. Yes. I recall that one. So, yeah, that was a bomb, that one.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, that was the movie they were talking about and working on at the time. And then when I came in, they had this. Great relationship that was the early days of the uh, relationship that became super strong with Rodriguez Robert Rodriguez was, yeah yeah Robert Rodriguez was uh, coming in strong to hybrid with that everything that he had planned for in the movie making and then I remember starting on those Spy Kids movie oh uh, yeah and it was intriguing in so many ways because at the time doing stereoscopic work was like working on the edge in a way, okay? We were in in those days where like wearing like those black and uh, red and blue glasses was such such an achievement and such a technical achievement in the industry to be able to deal with depth and what's coming out of the screen, what's gonna stick behind and give some depth to it. And then it was such a valuable project to work on, not only on the artistic side of things, Okay, not that Spy Kids pushed the edge of the VFX industry in any kind of way, but at the time, it was yet a cool movie to work on.
0: Okay. Absolutely. And, yeah. and nevertheless, VFX in general at the time, and even now, it's, I always say it's the side of the industry that's the most cutting edge technological absolutely. side of the industry. So it's, it's really fascinating.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. So that was my first project I got involved with at Hybrid. And then after a couple of years at Buzz, I went back to Hybrid. And I stayed there for five or six years. And I got enrolled as a 3D artist, mainly specialized specializing in texturing and lighting and shading and all that stuff. And a little bit of matte painting. And that was a very interesting period for me. Because we ended up working on some very, I'm going to say some iconic, very iconic pieces at the time. So there was this first black and white movie called Sin City.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, the Robert Robert Rodriguez Rodriguez. did. Yeah, that was amazing.
1: That was super interesting because we, I was part of a very small team at the time trying to develop how we're going to translate the visual aspect of the comic book into a movie picture and uh, essentially we spent three months full-time me and two other guys at hybrid just like throwing renders and trying multiple different ways of treating the very specific look of what could be seen in the in the comic book whether it was like just like inverting uh, shadows for them to be white instead of like dark and there was like so many things that we explored and we went in, in. there was a moment where the talk was like w- whether we should keep it in black and white or should we start introducing some colors and all that stuff. So the pre-production the process of that show has been a, a real blast for me. And then not so long after Sin City was wrapped, we got the chance to work on Frank Miller's comic book called 300.
0: Yeah, that's also and, incredible. Yeah.
1: Oh yeah, and that one was. Also, like, like the most, one of the most enjoyable projects I've ever worked on. To be honest, it's like I remember looking at those like stunning images that we had to translate, and I was like, ah, I'm so damn lucky to be able to just grab this piece of art from a book, and now I need to make it like my own version, but still keeping the essence of the comic book. And that, that, yeah, that, that movie was absolutely amazing to work on.:
0: I'll tell you, I've seen so many films throughout my life in the movie theater, but when I think back on certain films, what, like thinking back on that film was like a cinematic highlight to see that on the IMAX and just yeah. it just blew me away seeing that film. So that's so amazing. I love that movie.
1: Yeah, it is. It is. Yes, yeah, It's always going to be on my like, short list of highlights. So after spending, yeah, five or six years up north, I got like fed up by the the, the crazy travel time that I had to, do, to deal with because I decided at the time that I didn't want to move up north. So I had to transit every day from Montreal up north to hybrid. So I decided to leave and I went back to a bus again that got into some sort of a transitioning era. So they went from Buzz Image to oblique ethics at the time.
0: And was that and, also uh, a generalist?
1: Mainly, but they were like the intention at the time to was to separate buzz image and like commercials and music, music clips from the TV and movie production. So Buzz Image w- was at the time very uh, much a brand. That was only dealing with commercial stuff mainly, whereas Oblique became specialized for movie and TV. And then I spent a couple of years there until a friend of a couple of friends of mine who I was working with them back at hybrid decided to start their own VFX shop called Modus FX. And they came up with this plan that was. Pretty, pretty sexy at the time, I have to say, thinking that they could build a company from the ground up that could really quickly start working on some big productions. And I just decided to do the leap of faith. And I, I joined them from like, at, like in the first couple of months when they started off everything, I was the first, pretty much, I, I was the first employee to join Modus at the time.
0: That's incredible. And do you remember the first film that you worked on? There. We spent a couple a couple of months
1: hovering from 911 little leftovers from one place to another. I remember working a little bit on the Beverly Hills Chihuahua. There was just like a couple of shots that we we had to work on as a 911 vendor just because they were about to release and they had a bit of overflow. And when then, you say
0: 911 uh, vendor, do you mean like emergency shot yeah, like yeah. 911? Yeah, exactly. That makes sense. Like, yeah.
1: Like, there's no time left. There's a little bit of overs from uh, overflow. Yeah. from other vendors so are you guys able to get that in and then is that a
0: term that's common in the VFX industry like a 911 vendor? Oh yeah okay
1: yeah very much yes yeah usually you don't necessarily want to get involved on in 911 shows unless that's the only thing that you can get your hands on and when you're a startup it's very likely what you're gonna to have to start with Gotcha. Uh, That makes sense. That's, yeah, that's how it is. The first big show that we had to work on at Modus was called Mr. Nobody.
0: Oh, I remember that film. Yeah. With Jared Leto. Yes. Yeah, that was a great film and underrated too.
1: Very underrated. Yeah, absolutely. Makes me remember. It remembers, uh, it, it gets, it gets, gets me back in time at at Buzz Image when I got the chance to work on Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind another one in my like wonderful favorite film
0: Michelle Gondry directed it. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes, such a masterpiece. Total masterpiece. Uh, so much fun. And then yeah, uh, Mr. Nobody was another one of those great show and at the time uh, we were in the early days of Moses and we basically were a team of I'm going to say under 10 Okay, I think we were like at the time like seven or eight artists. Mostly, all of us were seniors, pretty strong generalists. We could do almost anything, and then we decided to take on the, this big piece of pie that was Mister Nobody at the time. And yeah, we ended up doing something that was in, that I'm still incredibly proud of, to be honest, because. There was quite a significant amount of shots in a very short turnaround time. All of that was, was within like a six-month period, over, like spread over seven guys. I can tell you it was like, yeah, uh, we were working around the clock for three months straight. I can imagine. Oh, yeah. And that was crazy. But such, such, such an experience in terms of learning how to streamline things, out to cut corners where you can actually do it. And it's just like these experiences are learning you how to how to really understand what matters in a in an image in a moving shot, and where to spend your time and focus and and strength basically because it's an image composition is one thing that you need to get to learn very quickly in order to understand exactly where you want the audience to to be looking at. So that you don't have to spend too much time on the opposite corners of the image. But really very much like focus on what matters the most. What's the shot about? What's the storytelling about each and every shot? Like where and does the eye come into, that, yeah. exactly. Once you understand that, this is when things are getting a lot easier in so many ways because you're not necessarily overwhelmed by the amount of steps and details and things that you need to do in a shot you're only focusing on what really matters. Therefore you kind of, you, you step aside and you take a step back on everything that you're doing and then you're like, okay, now what seemed to be an impossible task is very much doable because I know I don't have to spend as much time on every single aspect of the show. That and, makes sense.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you're talking about this because I think this is something that could pertain even to other things in filmmaking and other things in life in general. And you're just talking about like, where do you put your focus on? Where do you put the priority on?
1: Yes. And n- nowadays it's probably one of the most important things that us as a VFX supervisors are trying to, are trying to just explain and get everybody to really understand because having, just looking at keeping sight of the big picture of what we're doing is essential. And the minute you lose sight of this big, big picture, you're going to get overwhelmed right away because okay? things are evolving in a sense that the, the amount of content that we need to generate these days is insane. The requirements and the expectations are just like raising every year, project after project, because there's only one reason why it's, it keeps happening. It's just that we keep raising the bar. Every time we do something, it's slightly better than the last time we did it. So for clients, as much as for artists, everybody is, if we were able to do better than last time, means that next time we're going to do it, it's going to be even better. And then you realize that you're constantly able to push the limits by rethinking your way of doing things. And that's the main challenge, let's say, in that industry these days, especially if you want to step up in the hierarchy and get into those like leads, position, supervisor position. You really need to understand what's essential to the storytelling. What's essential for the client it's, and then focus on that solely and forget about the rest because the rest of it is just going to fall in place automatically. Once you nail the main and primary thing.
0: That makes absolute sense. Uh, about just distilling it down to the thing that's m- the most important. Yeah. And so at Modus Effects, you also worked on a bunch of other projects that were noteworthy, like The American, In Source Code, The Twilight Saga, Breaking Dawn, The yes. Immortals, Mirror, Mirror, and The Avengers, yeah. which is pretty incredible. Yes. Do you recall any particularly challenging work from any of those films? And how do you overcome such challenges? Yes, because
1: over over the course of a couple of years, we went from like a bunch of 10, 10, 10 guys working on whatever came in and we expanded that to a team of over 150 at some point. So we were able to overlap different shows at that time where we started to work on such big, brand, such, such big names and big projects. And one of the main biggest challenge at the time is that The minute you step in the A-list projects, clients are quite different. Okay. So you get from, and it's, I'm not going to say anything negative in terms of like different types of clients, but there's essentially two types of clients. The ones that are, are working on smaller shows are generally going to be lacking some knowledge of the VFX industry. And asking for a lot of things that they don't know of, essentially like it, for the most part. So you're in control. You need to give them a sense. <laughs> you need to give them a sense of control. Yet you need to be the one in charge. At the time, at Mo it was such a great school in a way. Okay, mm-hmm. so we went from like smaller underground independent movies, working with some clients that didn't know much about the, yeah. but. They did know a lot about movie making and how to make great shots. So they were pretty much relying on us in terms of technically speaking, how we handle VFX, uh, how should they be shooting their sequences so that we could make the most out of it once we get them on our end as VFX vendors. And then suddenly we started working on those like A-listed projects very quickly and to be frank, one of the biggest challenges was that we didn't have a pipeline per se. We didn't have much knowledge in terms of like how big studios that we were working alongside with were dealing with those A-vendors, A-list projects. Okay? And that was like a great experience in so many ways for us to understand intricacies and how everything is has to be fine-tuned perfectly in sync so that clients on such like movies like Avengers, Twilight, Mirror, they know very much about VFX, as much as we do pretty much, as well as movie making. So for us, it was like a big step up in a sense that, okay, now we talk to someone who knows exactly what we're doing, Yet, their expectations are going to be even higher suddenly because we cannot trip and fall without the consequences. Right. So we had to learn very quickly that without a pipeline, you need to rely on each and everybody involved in the process to be really focused on what they're doing so that there's no mistakes. A pipeline is meant to be covering yourselves And And could you
0: expand on the, yeah, I guess, could you expand on for people that don't know? Yes. A
1: a pipeline is basically just like the way of doing things from the ground up. Like the the minute you get a plate from the, from the client, a plate being, let's say an actor in front of a blue screen. Okay. The minute you get the plate is going to go through this process of being ingested so that we can match the color space of the client. And then it's going to be tracked so that we get a 3D camera that is doing exactly the same movement as the real live-action camera that captured the plate. And then it goes into layout so that we can build an environment around that actor on a blue screen. And then it goes into animation so that we can add cars driving by uh, or whatever else things that should be moving in the shot. And then it goes through like... Um, modeling uh, houses and streets and lampposts and then applying textures on it and then shading surfacing that needs to be applied so that wood looks like wood and metal looks like metal and then all of this gets to be going through a lighting department which is doing exactly the same work as gaffers on a film on a film set which is just like positioning lights so that things are looking real and they're looking like what's been shot. And then you get to the final stage, which is compositing, where using 2D compositing software, you're going to assemble the live action plate minus the blue screen. And you're going to get all, you're going to stack all the different layers that were built by the through the pipeline by the artist's, such as the road, the buildings behind, the CG car passing in front or behind the actors, and all the, those things that are going to interact or, uh, directly or indirectly with the plate. So all of these pieces, they have to be built. When you start working on bigger movies, you're not relying solely on generalists that are just going to take a shot and do everything on their own you start relying on multiple artists that are specialized in their own field, which means a muddler is strictly going to do modeling, a texture artist is strictly going to do texture, a lighting artist is strictly going to do lighting, so that they can take whatever someone else has built from from a department and then take it So that they can apply their own work on it and then they pass it on to the next step in the pipeline. This is how we build shots. And the minute you start working on movies that have multiple shots in a sequence, you need to rely on the pipeline. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to keep consistency throughout the sequence, streamlining the build of your different assets, creatures, environment, animation, all that stuff. So this is the big step from going from a small team of generalists that are only focusing on standalone shots, building their own things, not focusing on what comes before and after, because it's a standalone thing. It only has to be beautiful as a standalone piece. When you start working on bigger shows, then you have sequences. Sequences means the same car could be seen 50 times in 50 different shots in maybe three different lighting scenarios, daytime, nighttime, storm. So this becomes now a teamwork, and a team needs to work through a pipeline in order to keep consistency, and the mechanical aspect of what we're doing has to rely on the pipeline and uh, a very organized, structured way of doing things. Otherwise, nothing's going to work at the end.
0: That, yeah, that makes sense. Would you say in a sense that, and I appreciate this definition, it's really shedding a lot of light on it for somebody that's like myself, that's outside of the VFX industry. Would you say in a sense that it's like the VFX workflow that the order of operations is so critical in that workflow? Yes. Oh yes,
1: absolutely. Yes. It's literally the name of the game now. Nowadays, the greatest the, you can have the greatest bunch of guys and artists working on a show if they don't have access to at least like a good a, a good amount of like tool sets that are doing some of the work in the background, things everything's gonna collapse at some point. So you need to rely on something like you, you need to rely on at least like a, a pipeline foundation. For everything to work None, no matter how good the artists are and of course the better the pipeline is the more streamlined efficient and focused on the details you become as a vfx vendor and this is when it starts being very fun in a way because every step you, you take in the right direction building that pipeline gives you an instant, and it gives you an instant push forward, an instant impact that you're, you're internally going to feel right away. Okay? It doesn't necessarily mean that the client is going to feel it. Okay. Because nonetheless, one thing that needs to be remembered is that things don't always go the right way. When we do, when we start a show, we come up with a plan, we plan for the worst. Hope for the best, as most people are doing.
0: Yeah, I always say that in general, because I also mentor film students, and I always say, listen, a big part of filmmaking is problem solving. Problem solving yes. is synonymous with this field in general.
1: That's exactly it. Yes, yes. And if there is one industry where you're rarely going to do the same thing twice, exactly the same, in the same fashion, it's it has to be VFX. Because you need to learn from one way of doing things and try and understand right away, what can be changed for it to be made quicker, faster, better. Yeah, that... If you stop thinking that way. You're gonna hit a wall at some point. Okay. It's <laughs>
0: almost like you guys are it's almost like VFX is the quantum mechanics of cinema.
1: Oh, my God. I probably never want to compare ourselves with any of the engineers and great people that are working in like the medical field because we're not saving lives. Okay? We're just like making entertainment. But for sure, we, we enjoy the process, even though a lot of things, a lot of times it becomes quite frustrating because you're like, okay.
0: You're dealing with the minutia. And that's why I'm glad that you said, because that's something I say to my film students too. I'm like, hey, I'm like, sometimes when you're caught up in any individual thing, I'm like, any individual part of filmmaking could be tedious. It could feel like, why am I doing this? And why am I doing this over and over again? I'm like, that's why it's important to step back and take a look at the big picture. So I'm glad that you were saying that before, because that's so important.
1: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And the sooner you understand that, the better you're going to, get and the more efficient you're going to get basically and yeah there's this one thing that is like there's a balance with handling clients expectations so that they don't they they don't get they, they don't get to hurt you internally because one thing that you can expect is that what we're doing is art in a way okay so art means nothing of what we're gonna be doing on a daily basis is objective. Yes, we rely on some live action references and we tend to, to gather so many references for us to mimic and translate over what we're doing. But at the end of the day, your vision of a beautiful sunset scene and my vision of a beautiful sunset scene to end a movie, will never be exactly the same.
0: Absolutely. So Absolutely. for
1: that reason, you need to be prepared for so many curveballs that are going to come up your way throughout the process.
0: Does that ever get difficult when you're dealing with going on some of these A-list projects? Like when you're dealing with a big committee of people that is making decisions on things on the client side, and I know that's a tricky question to answer because
1: not necessarily. Okay. Uh, All right. Uh- I'm glad that you're asking that because to be perfectly honest, the biggest A-list clients are probably the best at that kind of work. The reason is they come up so prepared. And normally, okay, throughout the process, it's mainly one guy that I'm going to have to deal with who's going to take decisions on artistical directions. And he's the one, the VFX supervisor client side, He's the one that is going to be translating what I'm trying to do over to his client, who is the director, and selling it to the director. So most of the time, I only have to convince one guy that what we're doing is looking good. That makes sense,
0: actually. And And I can see the value in that of it being so much better. Because I used to work at a large corporation where I was making branded content type of videos. And I used to have to deal with many people and then... Sometimes it was very challenging because the edits, this was a different sort of thing. It wasn't VFX related, it was yeah. just general producing videos and then editing them. But sometimes it would just be never ending.
1: <laughs> I, we still have to do to deal with these situation. And so the big, the, like, the easiest way to compare A-list project clients next to like more independent kind of filmmaking is that A-list project clients are doing all the research and development. They come up with an art book of what their movie is going to look like. So you get to be presenting, you get to be presented to the overall mood aspect, what exactly they want. The minute they they award a a portion of a show to a vendor such as Rodeo, they pretty much know exactly what they want and what it's going to look like at the end therefore there's a little bit of leeway through the process to change things to get things to look better because it's a constantly evolving process whereas when you're working with more independent filmmakers they don't come up as prepared nowhere near as prepared and in in most cases because they don't have all that knowledge and structure to build the pre-production art book which means sometimes you're going to end up like having to go through five different people around the table that are going to give their own feeling about a shot which becomes a real nightmare because now you get into like subjective world and you get to have okay a, a bit of what everybody is expecting to see and sometimes there's no way to translate five people's ideas into one single image
0: that makes perfect sense. Yeah. yeah. It's almost like if somebody was looking at a color, somebody could say, I love that color grade. It's so stylistic and cool. And somebody else could be like, ah, I don't know. I don't really like it. Oh, yeah. There's too much it magenta right or whatever. Yeah. So since joining Rodeo, you've been working on a lot of interesting projects over there as well in terms of film and TV, including Game of Thrones, Stranger Things, Fantastic Beasts, Gods of Egypt, Star Trek Beyond. Do you recall any challenging shots or from a technical standpoint on any of those particular projects? Oh, yes,
1: many. When I first joined Rodeo in 2014, I was, I was starting up a satellite studio in Quebec City that became like pretty much the first satellite Rodeo satellite studio. And then at the same time, I had to build a team that was going to work remotely with the Montreal based team on shows. So I the first couple of shows and collaboration that we started working on was like were pretty challenging big big name projects. And one of the first one that can, comes to my mind is obviously as it has to be Game of Thrones which at the time was by far the show with the most the highest expectations in the TV series category. Like nothing came anywhere close to the level of, uh, the quality level of Game of Thrones. It's no surprise that they kept on winning the Emmy Awards for Best Visual Effects year after year, just because no one could get close to it. And for that reason, it was such a challenging time uh, for Rodeo to adapt to such a high-paced workflow, because working... One thing that we need to understand is that working in episodic to working on feature film is two different things. The pace is different. Things, especially on a show like Game of Thrones, which is, which has an episode coming out every week, you need to stick to a really strict schedule. And there is no way to just push the delivery date. There's no way out. You basically have to deliver whereas a feature film has always a little bit of leeway and it's built around a much bigger schedule and time frame. So there is a place for fluctuation in time and moving things around in milestones, whereas TV series is a different beast. And for this particular show, Game of Thrones, add the reality of high-speed content delivery, like any other TV shows, but expectations for quality was exactly the same as the AAA feature films that we were working on at the same time. So it was like, okay, how do we become suddenly so much more efficient at delivering the exact same quality as we keep on doing on feature films? And at the time, I remember that we took one big leap of faith out of so many, uh, we decided to get rid of good old the good old Softimage XSI software that used to be the foundation of Bruno, and then we moved on to Maya, which is very known these days because it's one of the most used 3D software out there. And everybody had to learn fast track Maya suddenly. <laughs> And not only was it a challenge for everybody who wasn't like used to dealing with Maya, it had to be done in the context of building shots for a Game of Thrones, which was extremely interesting. Because suddenly we became like very self aware of okay, now we become our own worst enemy if we don't find work workarounds very quickly to be as efficient as we were in XSI, because we cannot trip and fall internally. on And we, there, there's no excuses. Okay, You cannot come up to your client saying, oh, I'm sorry. I could not deliver because we've decided to go from Septimage to Maya, and everybody had to learn the tool. <laughs>
0: Yeah, they just want to see it get done. <laughs> oh, that's
1: it. That's the only thing they care about. They don't care about your internal issues. They just want to get the, the work done. So that was one of the very epic moments at, in my early days at Rodeo. And then we moved on some through some very interesting, challenging shows. I remember Gods of Egypt, not necessarily for the quality or the end result, but because of one extremely particular aspect of the movie that we had to deal with, which is a boat, a flying boat in space, made of crystal, encrusted gold pieces inside the crystal. For anyone who's never worked in a 3D software, it probably means nothing right now. But for anyone who has spent a lot of time dealing with surfacing and rendering and lighting, Dealing with something as intricate as gold and crystal and one inside the other is really involving. Okay. And it's a challenge on its own just to be able to render it so that it looks good. It doesn't blow up the roof in terms of rendering time. And it does, you can actually turn around things quickly if the client is asking for modifications. So that show was a very, very challenging, technically speaking, it was a very challenging project for us at Rudio because we had to learn a lot of things in terms of managing, rendering time and optimizing our 3D work, which is time of essence, basically, when it comes to rendering projects on a tight deadline, timeline and so brief yeah brief story about gods of egypt which brings me to in my personal career a big highlight was our involvement on stranger things because i i spent five years of my life working on that show
0: that's a Uh, and that's a amazing looking show
1: yes i have to say that i'm a, a Extremely proud of of the work that was done on season three and four, not only because I was uh, so deeply involved on it, but because I think we made this franchise to be what it is today because of the quality of the VFX that we could produce. And I mean... We have not been involved whatsoever on season one and two of Stranger Things, which was at the time already such a recognized and renowned show for Netflix. It's always been their flagship title. But when we, we came up in the discussion with the clients at the time to be working on season three, we didn't know what to expect in terms of work, and we didn't we were not expecting to be the main vendor and have such an involvement on the show. And for so many reasons that I cannot go through right now, we ended up just like picking the, like pretty much the whole pie in terms of workload in season three. And we became from what we were expecting to be a leftover kind of workload that all the other vendors would not want to work on to, okay, So Rodeo now you're in charge of developing the creatures and big sequences for this, this season three. And I was, so I was, I was VFX supervisor of the show at the time, working on it, starting the show with my team in Quebec. And at the time we were something like 45 artists and the production members in the Quebec office. And we rapidly had to grow up quick like quite significantly because of the amount of work. And that was a great collaboration work where we started tying up the team in Quebec with the one in Montreal in a very efficient way. That was truly the first time we had to work to join the workforce of both studios at the same time and find ways to work remotely in the most efficient way possible. And it ended up being a very positive experience for me and and for Rodeo as a whole and as a company. And yeah, that turned out to be also for my personal career, a great uh, achievement. That ended up following into a move onto the client side for season four. So I was, I ended up spending two years abroad in the U.S. overseeing and analyzing the, the film, the film production for Stranger Things 4. So I spent two years of my life on the set. That's pretty cool. The supervising there, which was yeah, probably something I'm gonna remember for the rest of my life for sure.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. And just switching gears a little bit, how often do you make use of practical camera angles when putting together special effect shots and could you recall any projects where practical angles helped enhance the authentic authenticity of the final shot in particular?
1: Can you explain a little what you mean by camera angles?
0: Firstly, Dara wrote this question. So it, this my explanation is an, more of an interpretation of the question. Do you ever look at something that's completely created by VFX and you're basically you're looking at a certain photograph or certain thing that you're emulating. And I'm sure that there's times where you're just looking at well, how does the light hit this, sort yes. of the side of this, yes. the facade of this building at this time okay. of the day, and we have to recreate that in a VFX kind of manner. Okay,
1: now I understand. So, so do we rely a lot on like real physical camera lenses or pretty much what it is, how much of the real-life filmmaking equipment is translated into our world?
0: Exactly, exactly.
1: Okay, I'm gonna say pretty much a hundred percent of it is based on full, accurate uh, cameras, and there is one reason for it. Well, there's multiple reasons for it. Obviously, if we need to create an environment behind an actor on a uh, filmed on a blue screen. If that shot was made using an Alexa camera, using an anamorphic lens, a 40 millimeter anamorphic lens, we have to do the exact same camera in the 3D software in order to create that environment that is going to stick and blend with the actor. Okay, We need to match the same lens and the same the same technical aspect of the camera that was used to shut the film.
0: You, so we, we I would imagine play even play. like the same dynamic range as well, right?
1: Same dynamic range, exactly. That that falls into yeah, the puzzle of like technical foundations of, of shots. If we need to, to take all the metadata that is coming from the camera that captured the image, and we need to translated over what we're doing and creating in a 3d package and a 2d package so that everything sticks together at the end and when it when the time comes to build an entirely cg scene with cg characters a cg landscape with whatever you imagine like whether it's meant to be looking futuristic or it's a sci-fi movie with a city on the moon or whether it's like a gorgeous Hawaiian landscape, the only way, the only real way for it to look real is for you to ask yourself, how would you have shot the same thing in real life? For instance, if you want to get a shot that is an aerial point of view rotating around the city, Real life scenario is either you're going to hop on a helicopter using a long lens camera, let's say a 200 millimeter or 400 millimeter, and you're just going to fly around it from a distance. Or you're going to use a drone, which is that new thing, a new era these days. Yet, you're you're always going to rely on a fairly long lens because you need to be capturing these shots from a certain distance. So if you're going to want to replicate the same essence in a full digital version of a shot, you need to think about how it's been done in real life and try and translate it in your 3D package. So you're going to get yourself into it. So you're going to create a a camera that's a long lens. You're going to get way behind your your environment, and you're going to start rotating the same way as you would have done it on an helicopter. Because if you try and do the same thing with a, a wide lens camera up close, you're never going to get the same feeling. And therefore, you're always going to look at your shot and like, what's not working? I'm not buying it. It's, it doesn't make sense. So VFX comes down to one rule. If you base yourself off of reality, and yes, there is always going to be a reference that you can capture to try and base yourself up, you're always going to get a much better result that if you try and eyeball things. Yeah,
0: that makes sense. And I've been hearing from some other VFX folks that have been on the podcast, and I've heard this from numerous people, that there are times where they'll try to convince even a client to do something practically that they would have done in VFX. So yes. I thought that's actually what was an interesting thing to hear. It is.
1: There There are some effects that yet to this day, we are struggling very, very much to achieve in a very realistic way. And it's easy to understand. It's not only for us in the visual effects industry that it's hard. When the best example I can give you is whenever my, my parents are going to look at a movie, okay, They're not going to be able to tell what's wrong with a VFX helicopter that's been added to a shot, but their eye is trained enough so that they can spot that something is wrong with the helicopter and it doesn't look real. Reason is we're all super, super trained with some like ordinary things such as like water, fire. Uh, human facial expressions, an helicopter flying in the sky. So the minute you're just a hinge wrong in terms of how quick an helicopter can bank, if the pivot point is not at the right place, if the reflection on it is not perfectly right and perfectly balanced with the environment and the lighting, anyone is going to be able to spot it and the sad thing about it is that sometimes it's just enough for the audience to get out of the story.
0: Yeah, that makes and, sense. And
1: yeah, for that reason, yes, we do have clients that are coming up to us asking whether we okay. Can you do a, such an effect? And in, in some instances, we're going to go, you're better off shooting it for real. Because chances are, we're never going to be able to achieve a perfectly natural and invisible result, full UVFX. Yeah. And
0: actually, I like how you say about just getting out of the story, because I've felt like that. And there's something that I felt like that about certain action films in the last 15 years, that sometimes they're, the shots are just so quick. That it's like, you have a split second shot here, like a fragment of a shot here. And then yes. people forget that you're supposed to be invested in the characters and what's happening with these characters, not just watching a bunch of cool looking...
1: <laughs> yes and that's part of it is part of it is storytelling so we don't have much to say on this
0: yeah that's th- th- by the way that's a total remark yeah. on the storytelling and the directing and the editing of the film like th- oh, yeah. that that's not a remark on vfx Oh so, well, yeah. i
1: understand but it's yet yeah, it's a good point we have a responsibility in terms of what we control over the process of filmmaking and When it comes to what we control, we obviously want our work to be pristine and visible, like eye appealing and very much in line with what matters the most, which is the storytelling and the feeling that you want the audience to remember when they look at something. Whether it's fear, astonishment, eyes, whatever it is, you need to keep that in mind. And in order to keep that in mind, you need to ask yourself exactly what will communicate that very emotion to you when you look at your work. And so that's why I said earlier on that you always need to step back and keep the big picture in mind. That's one thing. And you always have to remember that what you're doing is to serve the storytelling in the first place.
0: Yes, absolutely. That's, absolutely. The goal.
1: that's There's nothing else that matters in a sense. Like a director comes to you with his story or her story. You want to get in line with with his or her vision. That's all that matters. At the end of the day, it's not your own feeling that will make the most of a shot. It's making sure that he's blown away by what you're doing. And and that's the essence of of anybody who's going to want to work in that industry is to understand that when you're back at school, you're building your own things for your own self. The minute you step in a production role, you start working for someone else's vision. And you need to understand that very quickly because that's a big part of the the work that you're going to be doing is asking yourself, what is that person expecting?
0: Yeah. And listen, you said something key a few minutes ago when you said, if something is off, it'll take you out of the story. And that's what, what something that I've talked about a lot and something that I've thought about deeply when was just that I think cinema is like hypnosis to an extent once you're pulled into a good story you're pulled into that story you're in the world of that story you're like sucked into the movie and then so much of what's going on in that film is subconscious and so you also set a good example about your parents they might not or in a lot of people in general they might not articulate hey, this is good sound design or something like that. It's just because they're pulled into the world of it. If it's great sound design, that's part of the world and the texture of that story. Somebody might not articulate later on. Oh, I really, what they did there, it's just as a whole piece, they really liked it and all these different things, the VFX, the sound design, the cinematography, like obviously the acting and the story, all of them come together to to form this sort of hypnotic experience.
1: Yeah, that's exactly it.
0: And so I guess going back to the questions here, which projects do you guys does the company's Quebec office take on specifically and how do you share or co- coordinate workflows and project deadlines with Rodeo's other locations?
1: To put it long story short, the pandemic has changed so many things in our way of doing things. Before the pandemic, we used to be working on shows that were dedicated geographically to remote studios. So we used to have a studio in Munich that was working on his own shows with his own team. And whenever there was an overflow and a lack of resources, they could grab some resources from Quebec, Montreal, or else same goes for Quebec. When the show was overloading the physical resources, then we started grabbing some remote resources from other studios, whereas now Since most of us are still working from home, we made it like more or less just like a gigantic global pool of talent so that no matter where you are, whether it's Vancouver, Toronto, Quebec, Los Angeles, somewhere in Europe, in the U.S., you become a resource that is available for any rodeo project. So when we start building our teams now, I get to work with a core team which is something that is rarely going to change. The core team is essentially leads for each specialized pipeline steps and a coordination team that is going to help me produce the visual effects, coordinate, schedule, the whole planning internally and maybe with the client. All that structure, which is called the core team, is something that is pretty much like set in stone. And then based off the workload, and these people are mostly in Quebec, okay? And then once we get a workload on a show, whether it's 300 shots, 1,000 shots, then we can come up with a schedule that is going to give us a sense of how many artists, how many heads we're going to need to produce the amount of work. And then we start just like booking people no matter where they are. So it's basically going to be a casting exercise. Who's the best person, wherever he is or she is, who's the best person to do that kind of work? And then we start building a team based off off that. And I would expect that it's the case for pretty much all the vendors these days, not only for rodeo, but pretty much everybody is working in the same fashion now since since things have changed so dramatically our way of working now.
0: Yeah, I have heard that consensus from other people as well and mm-hmm. that things were going, I've heard from a couple of people that things were going a little bit in that direction already where people were working from home and then the pandemic sort of intensified that.
1: Oh yeah, I it did, uh, Yeah, I, I think at least I speak for our industry, I don't think we're ever going to go back to a full location working scenario that the hybrid working solution, which is like part-time in the office, part-time at home is here to stay. Yeah. And for that reason, we've started changing our ways of dealing and communicating as a team so that it works for both scenarios and for both, for both people that are from home and or people that are at work. The 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 whole logistics is I'm like there's a lot of very good things that came out of it. Just get, getting rid for the most people, getting rid of a two-hour transit time is obviously a game. So you can bet that most people are with that two hour of additional time in, in a day can probably give you a little more than they used to give you when they had to come over to the office and then head back home after their day. Whereas now, yeah, you're pretty much living where your workstation is. So it it gets to put people in a situation where they can be a little more flexible. But the downside of it all is that we used to have a lot of like small talks happening between people sitting in the same office in the same open space that is not happening anymore. And that small talk was... Not so much benefiting the most seniors and experienced workers, but they were of great value for the juniors starting in the field. And this is now our main focus and I'd say greatest challenge to board those new juniors freshly out of school. And even though they're not going to be physically in the same working environment as some more experienced people, how do we support them so that they understand exactly what they need to do. They learn as fast as they would have done in a physical office surrounded by experienced people. And they, they basically get the work done. So that's the greatest challenge we all face.
0: Nice. And is there any specific technology unique to Rodeo that the company is investing in and perhaps putting you ahead of other vendors? In the visual effects world
1: like a technology achievement in our field is not so common in the sense that pretty much everything has been done and there's just so little room for improvement in for the most case yet we're in an era now where video gaming technology is starting to merge into vfx world And we obviously spend a lot of time and resources and development to try and make the best use possible for these like Unreal rendering engine and how we can incorporate it in the VFX reality so that it can speed up the process, help out creatively and get us an edge basically. But like I said, everybody is into it. These days, it's not just for real deal to work with this technology. Same goes for deep fake technology, which is, as it's been out there for a couple of years now, it's been such a cool little gimmick that people like, you download an app on your phone and then you can suddenly become, you can put your face like in a couple of clicks into a James Bond shot. And yes, it looks good on a phone. But then if you want to do the same work, so for it to look like film quality it's yet another thing and now that's a work that that's that that's a part of the that's part of the research and development that is ongoing right now to push the boundaries of what can be done with deep fake technology at rodeo that's one thing that we're working on really hard on top of developing also our own intellectual property content, such as animation, full animation content. We do have an animation department now, a division that is solely working on full CG animated features, and one that has been traveling around the world. It's called Kitaneri, has has been through some film festival over the last couple of months, and it's it's a first step of many that we want to take into the world of creating our own content and animation which is very fun because it's a, different, it's a different world. Now you need to be your own deciding brain when it comes to storytelling. No one is involved other than you, so your own mastermind.
0: Oh, that's pretty uh, cool. So you guys are even coming up with the concepts altogether? Everything. Wow. Yeah, everything yeah. is
1: being decided and, and developed within, within Rovio and the team members. So that's one thing. And then we also have a good, you were talking about cameras earlier on and real life. I was just like doing this bridge between real life equipment that is being used on set and what we're doing from day one. Rodeo has been built with that same mentality as the big players in the industry, such as industrial lights and magic. And we have this, we have this stage that's that filming stage at Rodeo in Montreal that allows us to film some performances, capture some motion, capture animation data, film some water elements, some fire elements, whatever elements we want. Essentially it comes down to, okay, is it better for us to just do it practically and shoot it and incorporate it into a shot or try and, and do a simulation in full VFX? So now we have the ability to do both. In fact, we always add the ability to do both because we're equipped to take that decision early on on our shows and pick the best approach for the end result.
0: Nice. And Martin, you worked with on We Could Be Heroes that was also directed by Robert Rodriguez. <laughs> Did you get yes. a chance to... You've worked on a couple of projects with Robert Rodriguez. Have you ever dealt with him personally? or? No,
1: not at the time when I was at the time when I was working on these on these movies with Rodriguez. I wasn't I was not in a position to go on set and meet with the directors. Whereas now, if yeah, if ever I get to work on a Rodriguez movie, I might end up spending some time on the set and then meeting the guy. Yeah. At last. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, it's gonna it's gonna happen.
0: It's fun, it's funny because when I was. In my early 20s i had the movie sin city there's just there was a couple of movies that used to just play like artwork in my apartment that was one of them i used to just almost have it like on a loop because i just really loved the look of that film and it just used to just play almost like artwork in my apartment
1: (laughs) Oh, just a few days ago i was looking at the art book from the movie just like remembering how fun it was because technology at the time wasn't wasn't even close to what we we can do now, yet the process was the same. And what we achieved at the time, translating that comic book into moving picture, was nothing short of a like a real miracle in a way. I think we did something pretty cool.
0: Martin, I can't tell you how much I appreciate having you on the podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation. And- oh, so did I. And looking forward to seeing more works from you and Rodeo in the future.
1: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And hopefully, we can chat around on some other VFX topic some other time.
0: Absolutely. We'd love to.